State of Digital Publishing is a publication and community for digital publishing and media professionals in new media and technology. In this second season episode, we speak with Johnny Keldor, co-founder and CEO of PugPig, about the state of mobile app publishing. PugPig is a fully hosted digital publishing platform for sites, web and mobile apps, and TV. Let's begin. Hi, Johnny. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. I, I believe you're at a conference today, so thank you for ducking out and speaking to us. Yeah, no, you're welcome. I'm in New Orleans at the moment for the Online News Association. It's going to be a pretty big one, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It's conference season as well, so for sure. Johnny, I want to bring you on because I think this year there's been quite a bit of news on two things. There's been a lot more publishing platforms out there. I mean, I'll I'll let you to explain more of what that is for those who don't know. And then there's also the other thing around how new newer generations are not sort of reaching and engaging with mobile apps like other generations are. And I'd really love to speak more about that for today's conversation. Uh, but before we go into that, into deeper, I'd love you just to give people, to get people to know about you and to know a bit more about what PugPig is well. So over to you, Johnny. Okay, yeah. So um, PugPig is a digital publishing platform we've been going now for about eight and a half years so we launched back in February 2011 and we cover four sectors so we cover news media publishing consumer magazines b2b kind of specialist publishers and also associations and membership organizations and we do that across three different sort of areas so where we first started was very focused on digital edition mobile apps we also do just simple websites publishing websites And we have a platform, which we've had for a couple of years now, called Bolt, which is a pure mobile kind of content framework and and digital engagement platform. Definitely. That's that's really interesting. And I know, obviously, you guys have been around a lot longer than other people have, but why do you think now there's been more MarTech players coming into the space and trying to do very similar things that you guys have been doing? Why do you think that's the case? Well, it's a good question. It's funny because there are, there are companies coming into the space and also companies exiting. I think, I think kind of 11 years ago when the iPad was launched, or maybe 12 years ago now, there was a lot of excitement around digital publishing and mobile publishing and, and specifically that the iPad would, would counteract the decline in circulation that we were seeing in print and people spent a lot of money a lot of focus in creating you know, beautiful digital editions and so on. And I think fairly early on, it became clear that that model worked really well for some publishers and it worked really badly for other publishers. And also, I think there was just a simple reflection of, of the effort that you put in and the result that you get out. So, you know, as with every emerging technology, there was a lot of excitement at the beginning, followed by a lot of disappointments. And I think what we're seeing now you know, 10 years down the line is that people are slowly starting to understand what models work and they're slowly starting to see that mobile is a huge market. It's it's where the audience sits, you know, 65% of all digital minutes spent are mobile and 87% of all mobile minutes are through apps. And so if you want to reach an audience, apps really are the place to do it. And, And so the question then really remains, what's the best model? You know, as a, as a publisher, what are my best options for reaching that huge audience that sits on mobile? 
And so I, I guess the reason there are, there are kind of more people doing this now than ever before is that that fact is becoming clear. The bit that I think is still unknown is exactly what is the user experience that makes sense for any given publisher. And, and certainly in our experience, what we see is there isn't one approach or one model or one platform that works for everybody. You know, if you're a daily newspaper with a huge audience, you're going to have a very different way of deli delivering content to a monthly or quarterly glossy consumer magazine with a more niche audience. And Absolutely. so, yeah, so that's what we're seeing right now is certainly there's, the enthusiasm is, is coming back for mobile. But I still think there are there are lots of different models out there for publishers to to choose from, and the and the question is, you know, well, the, the, I think the the important thing is to spend time to understand which model is going to make most sense. So, why? I mean, what's sort of some of the reasons that the different types of customer profiles you mentioned come to you guys? Because I know from the, from my research on the market, some of them might present themselves as a easy wissy week sort of publisher tool versus another one might be focusing on a data play. What are some of the things that you think publishers are look, trying to look for when trying to come with, with a similar solution like yours? I think there are, there are a few very different models, which is probably, you know, there's a decision amongst, I guess there's a decision of three when you start as a publisher and you want to get into the space. One option is you take the kind of the ultimate low effort route and the cheap option, which is you deliver a print replica, a PDF replica of your, of your print edition. You know, and the advantage there is it, it really is no extra cost from an editorial standpoint. And the, and the solutions that deliver that sort of user experience are pretty cheap as well. I guess the disadvantage is that it's a pretty awful user experience, particularly on mobile. I mean, it's almost illegible. You then at the other end of the spectrum, you have, you know, a whole, a whole host of InDesign type tools so tools that either plug into InDesign or they behave in a similar way to InDesign and this is what Adobe did when they first launched with um, with the DPS platform you know the advantage there being that it tends to be lower friction from an editorial standpoint in terms of training up and being able to use the tools because they're tools that people are familiar with at least the way that they work and they can create a really beautiful user experience but they're extremely costly in terms of effort and, and this is one of the things we saw, again, kind of 10 years ago when, when people started delivering these apps and they were plowing huge amounts of effort into every edition. You know, I mean, publishers I was working with at the time, we, you're talking about teams of 10 people just to create a digital equivalent of a print product. So they were extremely expensive, both from a software standpoint, but also an effort standpoint. And so uh, when we launched, we took a third route, if you like, and, and, and our route was more, I think, taken from web publishing than from desktop, you know, print publishing. And so our idea was, look, let's use structured content at the heart of the editorial workflow, and let's use a set of templates and styles and, and typography that can be replicated using that structured content such that you can make an editorial workflow that is much, much lighter. So you put a lot of you put a, a lot of work up front into in terms of designing these templates and making sure that they fit the brand beautifully. Although you don't have to put a lot of effort in because you've got a lot of stuff off the shelf. But if you want to, you can spend a lot of time, you know, creating these beautiful templates. But once you get into delivering a an edition or delivering a page, it's much much easier. So you're talking about a few hours of somebody's time per edition rather than you know. 
20, 30 days. And that's, you know, that was the philosophy that we started with right from the very beginning. And, and that's, that really sits at the very heart of, of our platform. And now you're seeing, and have been for a couple of years now, other, other sort of publishing platforms following a similar route. I could see that as well. And um, I guess it shows the caliber of clients you're bringing on as well. So congratulations on the recent success with Condé Nast and, and there's top, a few of those publishing brands that are switched over to you. Johnny, I guess it's, it's interesting as well to hear about a bit about the journey and how you guys came to that conclusion now in targeting the web, using the web principles to be able to then create your product. What was your journey towards uh, de- de- determining what the MVP was and, and being able to commercialize that opportunity? Yeah, we were pretty lucky, actually. So the job that I had before starting PugPig was uh, a News Corp. And we were building a platform. So the last project I had there was building a, a platform called Alicia, which I, a few people might have heard of, although now, gosh, it's such a long time ago. But back, back in the day, it was quite a famous project. And we were building, I mean, if you look at it now, pretty much what Apple News and Apple News Plus are aspiring to be. That's what we were trying to build um, back in the day for News Corp. And the idea was it it wasn't just going to be News Corp, it was going to cover uh, initially in the US and the UK and across across Europe and Australia, in fact, it was gonna cover the entire news media and consumer magazine industry. So we were doing deals outside News Corp. And so as as we approached the problem of how do you build a publishing platform that is gonna take content not just from News Corp, so people like, you know, companies like the Times of London and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Post and the Sun, but also, you know, magazines from Condé Nast and for, from Hearst and so on. So the problem we were trying to solve was how do you get content from not just different businesses, different publishers, but very different sorts of content, glossy magazines and news media. And it seemed that the, the one technology that could definitely do that was HTML, right? So deliver the content as HTML pages. And and obviously the way to drive that delivery is through a CMS with structured content sitting at the heart. And back in the day, so that we're talking about 2010 now, we were engaging with art directors of magazines like Cosmopolitan and Grazia and taking them through that process of you know how do you how do you switch from being pixel perfect indesign driven to allowing your content to be delivered through a set of templates and that was a pretty long journey i have to say and i think at the beginning there was a lot of cynicism as to whether html could do that but and even when we started pugpig you know a couple of years after that that was always our concern was how do you how do you convince an art director that we can actually do a good job of of delivering their content in a beautiful way and i think we've got to that point now you know now that html is so much more sophisticated than it was i kind of feel like we've got to the end of that journey and for us the pinnacle well the most recent pinnacle yeah probably is you know the condé nast uh, catalog uh, sorry, portfolio in you know the UK and the USA and and, and quite a few other countries around Condenas International coming onto the platform shows me that you know there is a belief editorially now that you can do that. And actually, for us, the very first, I think the first really significant step for us was when well there were two. One when we got Grazia, you know, a very glossy, very complicated set of page layouts in Grazia, and how we you know how we managed to work with. Uh, Jonathan, their art director at the time, to create 
templated pages that properly represented that brand. And then after that, Stylist Magazine, which is a London-based, yeah, a London-based weekly magazine. Again, very high production values. Matt Fair, who's their art director, who is very precise uh, and very demanding in terms of, you know, delivering a beautiful product. And we were able to do it. And so, yeah, I think we've got to the point now where it's it's not even a debate anymore. I think people are pretty comfortable with the ability of HTML to deliver a really great reading experience. No, I think that's very positive to hear. And the fact that you, you had to write it out as well, because there's a lot of, it just broadly speaking, MarTech platforms out there that don't write it out enough, or they might not be able to have that stamina because of that adoption. So... I think, would you say that it also helped that you had that publisher background to also be able to get in front of those people as well and to work with them on that ongoing process of getting them on board? Or Yeah, I think it probably did help to a certain extent that we had a, a fairly decent network. But I think if I look back at the early days of the company, most of our most of our business came from referrals from business that we'd done. So we started with The Week, which is a fantastic product, um, and it was our first release. And, and from The Week, you know, we did very well, and it won a, a few prizes and so on. And, and mm-hmm. Karen O'Connor, who's the publisher of The Week, was always very complimentary of us. And, you know, he was, he was going to conferences and talking about this great app, and people were asking about how they got it built. And so a lot of the business we did in the early days was word of mouth and referral. And actually... The thing that it is easy to forget is that it did take a long time to build our customer base. I mean, you know, we, it was a couple of customers in the first year and then, you know, a handful more the following year. And it's only in the last few years that, that that's really started to, that, that we've gained momentum and got to the point now where we've got about 100 customers on the platform. And and actually now it's, it's, it's start, you know, the, the momentum's really got to the point where now it's self-perpetuating. But it did take, yeah, it did take a long time to start building that early customer base. No, thank you for sharing that. I think it's really important. People really forget that and they give up very quickly. So thank you for sharing that. So Johnny, with particularly the mobile app side, is it something that in the workflow, how, how does that work with the current workflow when someone's going to go through and create their digital additional or their mobile app with you guys? Well, the, 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 I guess the goal is always to make it as, as little work as possible. And again, that goes back to the, you know, the original philosophy around using structured data. So depending on the publisher, it works in lots of different ways. So some, I, I'd say on the, on the consumer magazine side, quite often the existing workflows are all driven around in design and print PDF. And, and quite often a consumer magazine publisher won't have you know, structured content because there's been no need for it in the past. The web content will sit in a CMS and that'll be fine, but the print content often doesn't. So, so with a consumer magazine publisher, we, we, there's a kind of spectrum across which we, we gather content. So on the one hand, we can take a PDF and we have a really cool partner. They're called Xcargo, which is X-C-A-G-O. And they take PDFs and they rip out all of the content and they deliver everything from the print edition as a, as a structured HTML feed which we can then just pull straight into our cms so that's kind of on one end of the scale where there's there's really no tech around in order to deliver the content to us and that works pretty well actually some publishers actually like to go into our cms and and hand you know hand code the the content we we just use wordpress so it's, it's exactly the same as doing 
web publishing, you know, you literally go in and you create an article and you upload images and off you go. You know, that's the most labor intensive approach. So we try to, we try to avoid that, but it's definitely there as an option. The easiest approach is where we simply pull content straight from publisher websites in, you know, as an RSS feed or an XML feed or a JSON feed. And in those instances, it really is zero touch. So we we are simply a byproduct of another editorial process. And that's, you know, that's where you want to get to, right? Because then what you're you're offering is a truly cross-platform solution, which doesn't take any effort at all. And so if I think of someone like Foreign Affairs, who are based in Manhattan, you know, we brought them onto the platform last Christmas, and they happened to have an RSS feed of every single article in every print edition that they've created, which mm-hmm. is fantastic because, you know, the set, literally the, the, the setup project to get them on board, they just squirted an RSS feed at us and we, we, we captured it and we created their entire back catalogue automatically and now every time they have a new edition they they literally hit a button it creates the edition for them they go through and QA it visually just to check for escaped characters and that sort of thing and then they hit publish so that's the um I guess that's where you want to get to that's the that's the perfect solution where it's really just no effort at all exactly and it should be part of your distribution plan I think it's becoming increasingly becoming part of the distribution plan we're seeing people even going back to offline printing to some extent. So yeah, uh, I 100% agree with you. Well, I was just going to say, then the other advantage, you know, so, so for some of our publishers, we are the CMS because we do their websites as well as our apps. For yeah. quite a lot of our publishers, we're not. We're kind of, we're a recipient of another process, which is fine. We either works for us. But then again, the other advantage of structured content is then we can also shoot it off to Apple News and Apple News Plus as well. So it's not just about powering the app. It's all of these other downstream channels as well, which can be really, I think, can be really valuable for publishers if they're used carefully, let's say. Definitely. It's interesting you brought up Apple News. So I'd love to just speak more about now the current state of things. And you know, we, there was actually an article, I think it was yesterday or the day before, as of the time of this recording, where we've uh, there was a finding, there was a study showing that probably the top 10% of the publishers actually get the lion's share of Apple news traffic. What do you, I'm not sure if you've read that and, and your thoughts about that. What do you think on, on that study and finding? Yeah, I, I didn't read the article, but it certainly doesn't surprise me. The, was it about Apple news or Apple news plus or both? I think it was both. Yeah. Okay. So, so they're two, I guess the first thing to say is they're two quite different platforms. So Apple news plus, you know, you're in a bundle and therefore the revenue that you get back from Apple is directly proportional to, you know, the amount of engagement your content gets. And if you're up against, you know, huge publishers, then that that is going to be, it's going to be smaller. If you're using Apple News, kind of the, the traditional service, then you can apply your own subscription onto Apple News. And so, you know, you, you have a little bit more control over what you're charging. But of course, I guess the, the the lure, if it's successful, of Apple News Plus is that potentially you're you're being you're getting revenue from a very 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 large audience, a sort of audience that you can dream of getting yourself. I think for me, like if I, I guess if it was me sitting there trying to work out whether to put my content into Apple News or Apple News Plus or neither, I'd be thinking about a couple of things. One, which is pretty obvious about, you know, the potential cannibalization of your existing subscribers. Mm-hmm. And that will depend on the amount and type of content that you put onto Apple News and Apple News Plus. 
And I think about the potential power of Apple News in particular as a way to acquire new audience and drive people to my owned, my owned platforms, my owned properties. So, and this is just a personal, I guess a, my personal preference would be to use Apple News for acquisition and to be very clear that what I'm putting onto Apple News is a subset of my broader product. And, you know, if you want the, the whole product, if you want the premium product, you've got to come to me to get it. And therefore you become a direct consumer. And Apple, in a way, becomes a sampling platform and a source of revenue, but not the primary source of revenue. Now, of course, everybody's different. They'll have their own, own opinion on that. But there's a lot to be said for owning your own platform, for owning your customer data, for owning your pricing strategy, for owning the user experience and everything else, you know, versus being at the mercy of the big platform players who will make unilateral decisions from now and forevermore because you know they're gonna they're always going to make decisions that are in their own interest i mean yeah history is history shows how being platform centric hasn't i mean even though that that was the buzz between 2013 to 2016 17 i guess it showed really that 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 wasn't really useful so yeah 100 agree with you on your points i think yeah i think i mean if you look at I think you look at Wall Street Journal and how they've handled it. I think it's it's brilliant, right? It's genius. So there are definitely ways of working with the platforms which are which are really advantageous to a brand. So with Wall Street Journal, you know, they've got a, a different content proposition. So you're getting Wall Street Journal bundled into Apple News Plus. So Apple can say, We've got the Wall Street Journal. But if you call the Wall Street Journal and say, Hey, I'm you know, I'm gonna um I'm going to cancel my subscription because I'm getting it through Apple News Plus. They'll take you through a whole journey of, you know, what you're going to miss out on and why Wall Street Journal on Apple News Plus is a subset of the whole product. And if you really love the Wall Street Journal, you'll stay with the Wall Street Journal buying from the Wall Street Journal. And that to me is a really smart concept. Susie Watford, who's their CMO, she was talking at um, INMA, the International News Media Association Conference a couple of months ago. And Mm -hmm. she talked about this, more for more, less for less strategy. The idea being that there's a standard Wall Street Journal product. You can get more if you pay more, but also there is a, you know, there is a, a less for less product, which in their case now happens to be Wall Street Journal and Apple News Plus. So that seems really smart. And I think that's, that's the way, if you can, to think about it is by having a portfolio of products which you, which you offer on different platforms rather than potentially cannibalizing the same product across the platforms. And I guess the can comes from, obviously, what stage you're at, how big you are, the amount of content and information you have. So what would you think about, how, how would the SMEs tackle that? Would it just be maybe focusing on maybe creating one product or maybe it's just not worth going into Apple News at all, given the current state of play, or what are your thoughts? I think it can really work for, for small publishers as well. And not to say that Motorsport Magazine is a small publisher because they're actually a well-established brand, but I think they're a really good example of a smaller publisher using Apple News to their benefit. So with Motorsport Magazine, it's a monthly subscription, and yes, it's a monthly print magazine which can be bought off the shelf or under a subscription, they have a pretty comprehensive website. They also have a digital edition app, which they publish with us, which you can either buy you know, direct from iTunes, either as a subscription or a single edition, or 
your print edition, you know, your print digital bundle will un unlock the app as well. On top of that, they have a daily feed of content. So you've got the, you know, you've got the monthly high value products there, which is unlocked through the subscription. There is then a daily feed of content in the app, which is driven from the web, a lot of which is free, which is a great way of engaging people and bringing them into the app, the app on a daily basis. And then they also publish content, actually in, in their case, through PugPig to Apple News. And they're using that. So there's a motorsport channel in Apple News. It's a brilliant way for them to acquire customers. And then they're using that to drive subscriptions. So you can either, there's a few different user journeys. One is you go into Apple News, you see the article, and you go and download the app, or you go to the motorsport website, you buy a subscription. And once you buy a subscription, and this is thanks to Apple, actually, you can, we can link an Apple News subscription, a specific, and we're talking about Apple News now, not Apple News Plus. So a, a motorsport Apple News subscription, we can link to the motorsport app and a subscription in that, which we can, and we can also link those two things back to a print digital bundle sold on the motorsport website. So you have this really nice closed circle. So if somebody comes into Apple News, they've never heard of Motorsport Magazine before, and they start reading content within Apple News, they can either then just buy the subscription right there inside Apple News, and that the subscription will be honored in the Motorsport app. Or they can go to the Motorsport app and download it and buy a subscription there, and equally the subscription will be honored within Apple News. So it's a, it's a, great, it's a great way of finding new audience, assuming you can then engage them and bring them into your own property. So I think it doesn't have to be for big, for big publishers. It can also be for, for the smaller publishers. And particularly if you're a niche publisher, you know, you have a, a highly differentiated product and, and so that can work really well for you. How long did Motorsports journey take? Like just to give an idea, to give a smaller niche publishers an idea, how long does that journey take to actually set up this, like with Apple News or just in general, the mobile app side of things? Well, I can speak from, from, a, from a PugPig perspective. If you're taking, well, let's use foreign affairs as an example, actually, because they're, they're, Motorsport, we've, gosh, we've worked with those guys for many, many years now. Foreign affairs, which we, we launched last in, uh, December, I, it was a handful of weeks. I can't remember if it was four or six weeks, which was basically sitting down with Ricky, who's, who has the, the digital side of the business, understanding what he wanted to do, you know, is this like a pure kind of mobile content kind of feed-based app or is it more of a digital edition? Understand what the page is going to look like. So what sort of typography he wants to use and what fonts and what branding and so on. Setting up an app container and a, and a CMS for him. Doing the content import and then submitting the app and, and launching it on Google Play and, and Apple. That whole end-to-end -end process it's a handful of weeks. I mean, it can be as short as a couple of weeks, but there's normally a bit of back and forth around, you know, getting the design right. But that's kind of, I guess that's, and this isn't just us, right? I mean, it's not like we're the only people who do this, but that's, that's typical for us. And I guess that's the idea of platforms, you know. We've, we've done this many, many times, so it takes all the pain away for a publisher. You don't have to worry about the tech. It's literally a case of us turning it on and configuring it and coloring it in and, and launching it. Makes sense. Okay, Johnny. So let's move on to the next sort of news that I've we've read, like the, that's been out there. There's been a study that shows as well that there's been less than twenty people actually around the twenty years old age. Less uh, they are not using news apps as much as as the older generation, and pretty much a lot of them are just using Instagram as a primary app. 
Is there, based on working with the publishers, have you noticed something similar? Or what are your thoughts around that sort of statistic? <laughs> it's an interesting statistic. I mean, and I, yeah, it, it, it also sounds reasonable. I think, um, I think this, is a, this is a thing that differs from brand to brand. I mean, the one example I can, I can bring here is a company called Tortoise Media, who we launched back in January. It's a brand new news media company. And the beauty of that is that they have no legacy whatsoever either brand legacy or tech legacy or anything else. And so they were able to start from scratch. And they built a product. We, we did a Kickstarter in October last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a membership product. So it's paid. It's not, it's not that cheap either. It's £50 a year for most people. The, the full price is £250. But if you're, if you're, I think it's under 30, or if, you're group, you know, if you have a group of people coming in together, it's a £50 a year subscription and they did a a really good job of of targeting younger readers and actually as a result of the marketing they've done the editorial stance they're taking the approach they're taking from a tech standpoint and i think partly helped by the the kickstarter campaign as well they're skewing actually under 30 so the the average demographic of the tortoise member is under 30 i can't remember the exact number i think it might be about 60 percent or under 30 or something like that that's pretty impressive yeah, it's really impressive. And I think for me, that shows that, I mean, it's, yes, I, I, can, I can completely see that from a traditional media standpoint, you know, younger people are less likely to consume, you know, traditional news media. But I think if you're building brands, or if you're able to evolve the brands, younger people are engaging with the news. So it's just a way, it's just a case of how do you, how do you get to them? So actually, one of the things that Tortoise do there's a couple of really interesting things about their model. One is that rather than giving content away to the platforms, they're seeding content on social media. So for example, their daily cartoon goes up onto Instagram every day and a couple of photos from their lead feature goes up every day. But the feature itself, the content itself, always gets consumed on platform. So no matter where you see the content, if you're going to consume it, you have to come onto the Tortoise platform in order to do that. And I think that's a really smart way of doing it. So using social media to capture that audience, but then using your own platform to have them consume your content. And I guess Tortoise Media, I'm assuming this because I haven't used it before, but they're obviously speaking more to the topics that younger readers are wanting to find out more about or concerned about, which also helps with in terms of branding and just what they stand yeah, for? Yeah, it's a good question. Yes, I think, I mean, I think that's a constant challenge to do that. The, the, the way that they the publish at the moment is they publish across five different areas. Now, I'm going to see if I can remember these now under pressure, but they are around technology. They're around capital, so finance. They're around longevity, so the fact that people are, are living for longer, so the 100-year life. And they're around society. And they're around the environment, and particularly the environment, of course, you know, everybody's concerned about that right now. So to me, what's interesting about those five areas is there's no breaking news, there's no celebrity, there's not really much sport apart from talking about the sports, kind of kind of meta content around sport, but there'll be no kind of match results or anything. So they're taking a very different approach to the journalism. And like I said, so far, it's, 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 it seems to be working really well. It's certainly not pandering to a younger demographic, but I think they're, they're, they've got a really good balance. I think as well, probably Taurus Minis, because I've read their um, announcements and stuff as well beforehand, and 
I, I know that they're also focusing on slow journalism. So slow journalism, which has crept up this year as well, it's, it's actually showing, in my opinion, that a lot of stuff which is technically breaking news isn't really breaking news, that there is, it's worth investing the time to go into a deep subject and topic and really just fleshing that out really well and explain that to, to audiences and that's what they're going to value in the end of the day. So that's probably also reflecting why younger readers are, are shifting towards that. I think they're underestimated at the moment. So Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's two things to say there. One is that, that breaking news is, is effectively commodity. It's commoditized and not only that, it's available for free everywhere. So it's very hard to to get people to pay for that. And, and as you say, I think the tortoise stance is that slow news, feature-led news is far more, it's, there's, there's, there's far more value that you can attribute to it. It's far more useful to society as a whole. And tortoise actually have two very, very specific goals. One is to slow, slow down news, and the other is to open up journalism. So they do two things around that. One is that the, the output is very different. So generally on a, on a, on a typical day tortoise will publish one feature and uh, the daily cartoon then at the weekends they're, they're publishing three or four different features and the cartoon so that's it that's the total output but on top of that and this is really important between mondays and thursdays they have a think in every evening which is basically an open editors conference so rather than having the editors conference in a room at 10 in the morning in a closed room it's actually held in the newsroom with members attending and they take part in the editorial discussion. So what's discussed in the thinking with a panel or not a panel, it's the wrong word, but a group of experts plus the editor plus 50 or so members informs then the tortoise journalism that follows that. So it's allowing the members to become part of the journalistic process. And those are the two big things that tortoise really care about. And hopefully those are the two things that will make it different to any other news organization right now. Definitely. I think fingers crossed for my end as well. So Johnny, let's look ahead a bit and let's look ahead both in terms of trends that you're seeing and then Pugpig's plans. But in terms of tech trends, how do you think digital editions or the mobile apps, how can they transform moving forward? Yeah. It's a good question. I think the first thing to say is a digital edition, and by that I mean the idea of consuming a finite kind of corpus of content on a regular basis. For example, reading The New Yorker or reading The Economist or The Spectator. I see that continuing for a very long time because I think there is a genuine there is genuine value in packaging up and curating content in that way that has a beginning and an end and that you can feel like that you've achieved something and that you've finished it. Certainly The Economist in particular and The Week in particular, they have concepts like finishability, this idea that a reader has a sense of achievement by getting to the end of you know, their, their weekly publication. And so I don't think technology changes that human urge to finish something. So that would be the first thing I would say is that for certain types of content and in our experience, you know, if I, as I look across our publishers, that does tend to work really well with daily and weekly kind of journal type publications, maybe less well with a, you know, a 300 page, beautiful, glossy magazine. So that'd be the first thing I'd say is that digital editions still make sense. Now how we deliver them might change, but I think just that general concept makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. I think then allied with that, 
and we see this a lot. We see it with the independent right now. In fact, we just relaunched today a new app for the independent called Independent Premium, which sits alongside their daily edition. And it's a relaunch of something called Independent Minds, which we launched about a year ago, which is, and we see this with The Telegraph and we see it with a bunch of other news media products. You have the daily edition or the weekly edition, or whatever it happens to be. And then you have another sort of user experience, which is a live content app, which is more about honing in, sorry, homing in on that desire we have for habit. You know, and that's what I guess that's what mobile does so well, you know, that that habitual behavior every time you're sitting at a bus stop or sitting at the breakfast table or sitting anywhere waiting for something to happen and trying to pass a couple of minutes. These apps are very good at that. So so I see and, and we see this right now, but I see it continuing that that split in user experience from a digital edition wanting to finish something and alongside it, that more kind of dipping in habitual type behavior. And they both exist together. And I don't think one trumps the other. I think it's about the type of content and it's about the audience that will determine which one of those they prefer. So I, I guess that's the first thing I'd say. And then beyond that, for me, I think news media are in a really good place right now. And I think there's, there's a really, I, I guess, positive move, movement towards paid content becoming ever more prevalent. So we've seen it obviously for some time now with the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Times of London. But we're seeing now more and more examples of news media publishers who have really top quality content, having the courage of their convictions to be able to charge for content and put paywalls up. And, and then on top of that, membership models. So things like Tortoise, but we're seeing, again, we're seeing this with a lot of our publishers, this move from subscription to membership, which sounds like a bit of a nuance, but it's actually fundamentally important because a subscription and we've heard this, you know, debated many times over the last year, you know, subscription is just a way of collecting repeat payments for something. Mm -hmm. Whereas a membership is something very different. You know, when you're a member, you are part of a community. And again, I think Tortoise does such a good job of this. You know, you are part of the editorial process. You are, you're a member in the sense of being a member in a, in a members club, not just you've got a subscription to a newspaper and we'll throw in a couple, couple of tickets to the cinema. And again, we're seeing this, with the consumer magazine publishers right now as well. So we're having some really interesting conversations with Hearst in the UK around building membership propositions for some of the consumer magazine brands. And then another interesting thing we've seen actually, again, with Hearst is, is the consumer magazine brands teaming up with social media stars. And, you know, the sort of the benefit you can get of those two groups, you know, so you've got the social media influencer who has a massive following, very loyal audience. And then you've got the consumer magazine publisher who has this machine which can create content and package it up and distribute it and put advertising around it, you know, which a social media influencer will have very little experience of. And so when you put those two things together, you can do some really cool stuff. So with men's health at the moment, we've done quite a few things now with Ross Edgley. So Ross Edgley is a fitness social media influencer he has probably around 700,000 followers now he's an incredible guy and he's you know he's he has an amazing brand and a huge following but with men's health he's also able to create really fantastic content and package it up and do advertising deals and all that sort of stuff so so that's another thing that I see happening more in the future is publishers being able to do create new products in very different ways by partnering with different sorts of people and social media, you know, and social media influencers become collaborators rather than competitors.
How about from a tech stack point of view, there's been a lot of conversation around progressive web apps becoming more mainstream and uh, and I think the adoption of JavaScript is becoming more common now because even from a search perspective, it's become more easier to, to read um, and being crawled. So is that something your team's investing, uh, exploring more in or what's the, in terms of tech stack, what are some of the options now that you can, you can move forward towards? Yeah, I mean, we've all, we've always, I mean, the reason we're called PugPig is because from the very beginning, we've, we've taken a hybrid approach to our technology. So back in the day when we launched, if you remember, if you were building an, um, an iOS app, you had to use core text as the way to render content, text content within the app. And we took the what we thought was a controversial decision back in the day to say, well, no, let's use HTML instead. So we always had this kind of HTML embedded in native app approach. And, and we've continued that to, to this day. So everything we do exists both as, an, as a native app container with a lot of HTML and JavaScript in it, but also our web, you know, our web reader, if you like, or our web apps reutilize pretty much all of that code so for us it's just the way we work progressive web apps are you know they're kind of what we do already i think what's nice about a native app if you can get the tech right and if and if you can manage it in a way that it's not too much of an overhead from a tech tech standpoint it's simply the case that it can provide a better user experience you know it's it's more it's it's more tailored to the device i mean it's just a simple fact that android apps behave differently to iOS apps because Google have different design rules and user That's experience fine. rules that you have to abide by. So it's no coincidence that Facebook and Instagram and all of the big social platforms have native apps. You know, I mean, there was that kind of massive experiment. I know it was a long time ago now where Facebook basically tried to turn everything into a web app and spent a lot of money doing it and then threw it away. You know, and, and the technology's come on since then. But I think I think if you can, you know, if you can afford to do it, then the advantages in terms of just sheer delight and speed and, and still things that you can do as native apps that you can't with a progressive web app. I think it's it's depending on how often people really use this thing, it, it's quite often worth the extra effort. So if you're talking about you you want to engage with someone to do a little bit of direct marketing and I don't know, see a car manufacturer or something like that, then I, I totally understand the argument that having a native app is a complete waste of time. I mean, who's going to download an app, use it three times or use it once and then, you know, discard it again. It's just, it's far too much effort. And for those sorts of things, I think mobile web makes so much more sense. But I think if you're, if you're developing some sort of platform or some sort of service where you are regularly engaging with your audience multiple times a day, multiple days a week, then even if a native app is a few percent better, you know, the cumulative effect of that over time makes a lot of sense. And so, yeah, I think, uh, you know, the, the web app and the progressive web app technology is brilliant for acquisition because, you know, native apps are traditionally pretty awful for acquisition but if you've got an audience and you want them to be loyal and you want them to engage on a regular basis i think that's where the native apps still have the edge that, that makes sense and what are your plans this year and moving ahead with pugpig a couple of things really so from a product standpoint we've spent a lot of time in the last year perfecting a new product which is around websites mm -hmm. we i traditionally were kind of app guys even though we all of our app frameworks had a web equivalent but it dawned on us about a year ago that actually 
given that we've already got the CMS and you know all of the plugins to these third-party platforms and so on, actually we could do websites pretty easily. The difference being, you know, if you go to an agency, it's a full-on project. What we're trying to do here is have something just like with our apps that you can just kind of turn on and start using with a minimal amount of setup. So that's one area. Also with Bolt, which is the platform that powers Tortoise and, and the Independence or a number, number of other number of other products out there we're doing a lot on that we're integrating many more membership features on there social media features event integration and really turning that into a pretty powerful platform so we're spending a lot of time on that and then the third area really is kind of geographic expansion so we we started expanding our new york office about six months ago we're still small we've got a few people in new york but uh, we want to grow the u.s it feels like a really potentially fantastic market for us and you know we're we've got a big presence in the uk but i think there's a lot of potential in the us so those really are our kind of big areas of change the one thing that won't change is that you know quite a few years ago five or six years ago we thought we thought we had a platform that could do pretty much anything for anyone so we would we were doing all sorts you know we were looking into all sorts of different industries and employee engagement and all that sort of stuff and about three years ago we took a conscious decision to kind of refocus on publishing and that's paid off for us. And I think that we'll continue to do that. So, you know, we started calling ourselves content platform and so on. But I think we are firmly a, a publishing platform and we're focusing very much on the publishing. Those four sectors within publishing, so news media, consumer magazines, B2B kind of specialist publishers and associations and membership organizations. So that's, that's our focus now for the next probably couple of years, those, those three things. With that, I wish you all the best, Johnny, and thank you for joining us. Brilliant. Yeah, thanks very much. It's good to chat. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the State of Digital Publishing podcast. Listen to past and upcoming episodes across all major podcast networks. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and join our community groups. Finally, visit stateofdigitalpublishing.com for premium information, resources, and become a member today. Until next time.